0: I'm drawing your attention, as Pastor Barry mentioned, to Mark 7, but I also want to put up on the screen for you the companion text, uh, because Matthew's gospel gives us the same story, but probably with a little bit more elucidation, a few more details, if you will. So you can open up to Matthew if you wish to, uh, if you want to see it with a little bit more detail, the same story. We've got the same event. We've just got uh, two uh, accounts, one with a little bit more detail in it. And so we come to that to, together this day as we continue on in our Mark series uh, as you know the gospels uh, repeat each other but you get to different lenses on the same event and sometimes you get a, a few more details and nuances through the different gospel writers. Mark's gospel one of the trademarks of Mark's gospel is that he's a he's very to the point he's very succinct almost to the point that it's all you get is the point uh, where the other gospel writers will take the same events or incidents and they'll unpack them a little bit more. So it's helpful with this particular story I think to look at Matthew's uh, context for for the story in question today. I ask a question this morning that I think has an obvious answer and I'm not going to make it to make it a long question for you to ponder you shouldn't have to ponder it uh, for very long, if at all, is the grace of God available to anyone to anyone? Well, we'd all like to say, of course it is, but sometimes even church people say, well, I'm not so sure, and I'll give you an example of when somebody said basically no. Some of us remember Jeffrey Dahmer, and he went to prison, of course, because of some heinous crimes that he committed in the important city of Milwaukee a number of years ago. Whether you knew this or not, he became a follower of Christ in prison, and the pastor who baptized him and began to mentor him was confronted in his own church by one of his church members. Church member came up to Jeffrey Dahmer's pastor and he said, pastor, if Jeffrey Dahmer is going to heaven, then I don't want to be there. He was so disgusted. He was so discouraged, so put off to think that Jeffrey Dahmer could possibly be in glory after all of the despicable things that he did. I don't know how you feel about that. What makes a person feel like that? So put off with the idea that the grace of God could change a man, could renew a man, could forgive a man, such as Dahmer. Dahmer was a convict. He did contemptible things. He didn't elude justice, even while on earth. And if you know a bit of his earthly story, he even died in prison at the hands of another criminal. He was murdered. While in prison, this isn't a sermon about him. Simply this, the question simply has to be asked, though, today, is anyone beyond the reach of the grace of God if they genuinely repent of sin and seek to be forgiven? That's the question. Is anybody beyond the reach of the grace of God, yes or no, if they genuinely repent of sin and seek to be forgiven? And if you don't know the answer to that, I want you to think of a biblical example. What did Jesus say to the penitent thief on the cross who was dying next to Jesus who asked for mercy? What did Jesus say to him? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. That should give hope to any one of us because if we, if we really look in the mirror long enough, if we really know ourselves at all, we know that we're all sinners. We know that we all fall short of the glory of God. We all miss the mark. Who among us deserves the grace of God? We do not have to have committed the most heinous sins or crimes in the world to be labeled a sinner. The Bible calls all of us that. And and God doesn't blink at any sin. He doesn't, doesn't blink at any of it. And so we're all guilty. Here's something that I find just so strangely comforting. Strangely comforting. Scripture witnesses to the simple fact That during his lifetime on earth, our Lord attracted some of the most unsavory people to himself. That should comfort us. Well, I think it does. I think it comforts a lot of us. Jesus said this about himself. He said, The Son of Man, that was his favorite title for himself, by the way, the Son of Man. He often referred to himself that way. He said, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. He said, I I was among the people, I embraced the common person. I was not afraid to go to the house of of Matthew, the publican. I was not afraid to be with the the women of the evening, to share God's love with them. I I was among the people. And here's what they say about me. So I'm paraphrasing the scripture that's in front of you on the screen. Here's what they say about me. Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now popular Christian songs today say Jesus, friend of sinners, and That's a great song if you know that that song lyric. But when it was said about Jesus in that day that he was a friend of sinners, and he's in fact quoting it in that very verse, people who said that about him, they were not paying him a compliment. In fact, they were degrading him. They were deriding him. They were saying that's just scandalous. No Jewish, self-respecting Jewish male, a rabbi no less, and Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher, would be caught dead doing the things that Jesus did talking to people who were unclean, Gentiles, non-Jews, a woman no less here and there, like the woman of Samaria, John chapter 4, or the woman whose story that we come to today in Mark 7, Matthew 15. No self-respecting Jewish male or rabbi would do the things Jesus did. People said that's outrageous. That's ridiculous. These unsavory people that he spends time with, that he talks to. No, they were so uppity and frankly self-righteous, so many of the people in their religious uppityness of that day. Maybe you've heard of the Small sect of the Pharisees, we talk a lot about the Pharisees, they, there was a sect within the Pharisees called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees, I'm not making this up, it's recorded of them, in, you can read Barclay's commentary on the Bible, but go back to the Jewish Talmud and they're mentioned there, they were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees, this little sect within them, because every time they saw a woman, they covered their eyes and thus bumped into whatever happened to be about their bruises were the, quote, pious marks of their exalted sexual ethics, so they thought. So you get the point? Huh. They got the point. They got the bruises. I think that's called wearing your religion on your sleeve or on your head or something. So they were looking to look so pure and so committed to sexual purity that, oh, a woman is coming my way, and so I'll cover my eyes to, to look as though I'm just so committed to sexual purity, even though sin starts in the heart, Right. And they would literally bump into things, and they'd have bruises. And those bruises from bumping into things would be worn really as a badge of, of honor. Like, look how committed I am. Look how devoted I am to my faith. You know, it's just, it's just stinks, doesn't it? Doesn't it just kind of make you want to gag? That they would masquerade with that kind of, a, of an appearance of, of religiosity or of purity. Now, that's the kind of stuff Jesus came up against, and he said, You guys are like open graves. He said, outwardly, you look look immaculate, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Boy, did that give them heartburn. (laughs) That's putting it mildly. Our Lord was used to being misunderstood. The scripture testifies to that. In the prologue to the gospel of John, John the disciple says of Jesus, he came into the very world he created But the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. Let there be no doubt, Jesus understands what it's like to be misunderstood. If you feel misunderstood, he understands that. He came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. His own rejected him. One commentator puts it this way. I think this is a succinct succinct way to state it. Jesus was opposed by his own religious leaders. He's the Jewish Messiah. He wasn't embraced by his own leaders. He was rejected by them. He was doubted by his own family. You can read that throughout the Gospels. He was followed often for the wrong reason. People just wanted what they could get from him. He was accompanied by disciples who only partially understood him, yet he was always quickly recognized by evil spirits, and he was trusted implicitly by the desperate. We come today to the example of one of those people who was desperate the scriptures full of the stories of people thousands of them some of them with names many without their names in the pages of the bible people individuals who we read about today and we learn something about them and today there's a an unnamed woman in the account here in mark 7 who jesus celebrated her faith She's the most unlikely person to be celebrated, if you will. She wasn't a Jew. She wasn't a devoted person to following the ways of God. She wasn't an inheritor of the, of the promised land and the promised people. She was a Canaanite. She was a person that, that was a, of the race, of the ancestry, of the people that the nation of Israel had been committed to hundreds of years earlier to destroying. I want you to turn with me to... Let's read it from Matthew's Gospel and and see this story. It says that Jesus left Galilee and he went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre, you can always remember that, Tyre. I'm going to give you a a map here. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that we were focused here on Galilee. And Jerusalem's way down here. It's not even on my map because it's just below there. It's it's in the black down here, okay? But we said two-thirds of Jesus' ministry... His three-year, three-and-a-half-year ministry, which started with the first public miracle, making water into wine at Cana. Cana would be right about there. Okay, boyhood home, Nazareth, Cana. Two-thirds of his earthly ministry happened in the northern shores of Galilee. C- Capernaum would be right where my red dot is. That was his headquarters of the ministry there. Well, now, and, and, and the feeding of the 5,000 was over here. And we were over here uh, last week at the opening of Mark 7. But now we're over here in Tyre, in Sidon. This is modern-day Lebanon. This is two days' walking journey. Here's my question. As I studied the text this week, and I've read this before, but I've studied it a lot more this week, what in the world is he doing over here? That isn't Israel proper, then or now. It's Lebanon today, and back then that's not Jewish territory. It was Gentile lands predominantly, the, the lands of Tyre and Sidon. What in the world is he doing over there? It's an honest question. When I read a text, especially to preach it, I ask a lot of questions of the text. Why there? What's happening here? What's what's the connection here? So I guess I'm taking you a bit into my study. But let's just come back to the text here and we'll we'll try to answer some of those questions because they do have good answers. They have great answers. So we read on here. Jesus left Galilee. He went north to the region of Tyre, excuse me, and Sidon. A Gentile woman, excuse me, Who lived there, no no surprise she's a Gentile because he's in Gentile territory. She came to him pleading, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. That's a messianic title. Now she's not a Jew, but his reputation has somehow preceded him way up there, two days away from Jewish lands. She's calling him Messiah. She says, I've heard about you. I've heard about what's happening in the Galilee, two days journey away She says, you're the son of David. You're the greater David. You're the one they've been talking about. We know the Messiah is coming through the Jewish people. You're him. You're the son of David. She calls him by his messianic title. You can do something for me. I got a great need. She's a desperate woman. Oh, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. Now, none of us, I I, I would dare say know at all what she was going through. A lot of us here know what it's like to have a child or somebody we love and, and care deeply about, even if they're not our own relative. And can you imagine the grief that you would go through to see somebody you loved, somebody you cared about, that was self-harming them, themselves and, and you know striking themselves or throwing themselves on a fire or whatever they were doing because they were being tormented by an evil spirit. It would just rip your heart out. And so she is just she's walking through a nightmare here. She's living it. She's just in anguish for this dear child who's her own child that she loves dearly. She hears Jesus, of all people, is in her region, has come to a house entire, and she seeks him out. Now, she knows she's not a Jew. She knows she has no claim on the Jewish Messiah. The promises of the Messiah are first to the, to the Jewish nation. But she approaches him and she says, Messiah, son of David, have mercy on me. She's begging him. Look at verse 23. Jesus is quiet. It's, it's a, I'm going to suggest to you this is the silence of love. This is not a dispassionate silence. Sometimes silence is golden, and sometimes it's just it's, it's, it's passivity. It's, it's, it's not caring, but that's not his, his, his way. We know that because that's not who Jesus is. It says Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Don't misinterpret that and think he didn't care. Why is he there? He knows ahead of time what's going to happen. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. Their heart's in a different place. They're not too worried about her needs. Look at what they say. I find this heartless. Tell her to go away. She is bothering us with all her begging. If I were there, I'd like to think I'd say this. Truthfully, I probably would have been among them and just chided right in with them. It's easy for me to say this, right? If I could jump back in time right now, I'd say, you guys are losers. You know, <laughs> Get out of here. Let him do something for her. Are you kidding me? Look what she's going through. That's what I think I'd like to I'd like to think I'd say that. I'd probably be right with him and say, yeah, leave, leave the master alone. Let him rest. Figure out your own problems. So I, I can be pretty high and mighty from this vantage point, right? But I'm disgusted as I look at it from this vantage point of what, they're, what they say to her. She's hurting. She's suffering. She's got a real issue. So it's easy to be indignant from where we stand, isn't it? So Jesus, it's an interesting discussion. Jesus says to the woman, now I'm going to be real frank with you here. This is not an easy text to understand, okay? Maybe you've read along and you said, what is this? Jesus says to her, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. Boy, that sounds pretty exclusive. That sounds kind of, uh, hmm, a little bit weird, but... Then she came and worshiped him, pleading again, Lord, she drops the messianic title, but she keeps pressing him. Lord, help me. She doesn't care that that he is not there for her people, for the Gentiles, that he's come primarily, firstly, for the Jews. She says, I want your help. She presses him anyway. But then Jesus says something even a little bit more difficult to digest, at least for our ears. Jesus responded, it isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. What? Now, if you know your first century Judaism a bit, you know that the Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs. It was an epithet. It was a put-down. They called them dogs. They said they're unclean. They're ceremonially unclean. They can't come into the temple. They're not Jews. We can't even make them clean. They'd have to become proselytes to Judaism before we could ever make them clean. I'm going to explain this a little bit, so stay with me. Verse 27, she replied, that's true. That's true, Lord. I'm a Gentile. I'm a descendant of the Canaanites. I'm I'm not of the chosen people. I know that. I have no claim on you. But even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath the master's table. Quite an answer. How did she know to say that? Mark doesn't tell us. Matthew doesn't tell us. Look what Jesus says, verse 28. Dear woman. Jesus said to her, "Your faith is great; your request is granted," and her daughter was instantly healed. Boy, there's a lot going on here, but let's just take it in a few a few quick a few quick steps. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus had told his disciples when they went when they were sent on one of their first preaching missions, he said, "Don't preach to the Gentiles; preach to the Jews." He said, keep the message to the house of Israel. Because the gospel came first to the Jews. He's the Jewish Messiah. And they were, committed, they were commissioned first to go to the Jews. And, and they were sent by Jesus to speak first to their own people. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So is God an elitist? Is God an exclusive God that just wants to save one nation? Well, if you know the Bible, you know better. Way back in Genesis 12... 1 and 2, the first book of the Bible, when, when God told Abraham that he'd become the father uh, of all nations and, and be a, a blessing to all nations, we see right there explicitly that God wanted to bless the Gentiles with a savior, not just the Jews. But God chose a, a particular people, the chosen people, through whom he would work, elect them to bless the whole, the whole nation. And yet that idea of a chosen people continues into the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, a Jew himself, a converted Jew, a man who became a follower of Jesus, he said the gospel is, is to be given first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It's just in that order. It comes from the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. He's the Jewish Messiah. And he preached first to his own people, who, then they rejected him. and then, But Jews still today can become followers of Jesus, and many do. So we're just looking at a little bit of history here. We're looking quickly or just reviewing here what Jesus said uh, as he came into this town of Tyre. This Canaanite woman comes from the vicinity. She hears he is in town. We're not told how she knew that, but she found that out. And she has a great need. She's a desperate woman. We don't know her name. And so she knows of him. She knows he's the Messiah, and she calls him with a messianic title. So we're finding this out. We're finding out that the disciples are a bit weary or hard-hearted or maybe a bit of both. Send her away. So we're just going to, I'm moving a little bit quick here, and then he says to her, here's our discussion, here's where we can get into these sticky points, and I hope I can explain this in a, in a fairly efficient way today. He says to her, I, so you have that Old Testament and some New Testament background, and he's just being consistent with what the scripture says about what the Messiah is about. He's sent first to his own people. So he says to her, I was sent I was sent first to my own people. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't read too much into that. He's not saying there's no mission to you Gentiles. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying, I'm not sent. This is, I'm, I'm still on my initial mission here. I'm, I'm not sent here. But that doesn't mean that he's not got her in mind, her in view. It doesn't mean that. And so he says this in, in the Mark account. Jesus says, let the, let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, we don't have Greek in front of us. We've got the English translation most of us here. And, and the, sca- the word for dogs in the, in, the, in the, there's two different words. The scavenger dogs is one word and little dogs as house pet is another word. Jesus used the, the, the phrase little dogs when he talked to her. I think it's a lot softer term. It still is not, it's not as pejorative as scavenger dog. He didn't call her that. He did not use the same nomenclature or pejorative that the Pharisees, the religious leaders used of the Gentiles. He didn't say, you are a scavenger dog. He did not say that. He didn't use the same word. Gentiles had dogs like we do as pets. And he said, he said basically, he said, just like you folks have pets, he said, and, and, and a lot of the Jews didn't. They didn't practice that at all. He said, you're, you're like a little pet. Like you have one in your house. And he goes, just, he says, you, you, you eat at the table first before your, your, your pets would eat. That's basically what he was saying. She, she looks at that and she says, I am a little dog. She gets it. She says, I'm like a little, she said, but even the pets under our table, Lord, get what our children drop. So she says, yes. She, she, sees, she sees what's going on there. It's a neat interplay. And, and so she says, basically, I have no claim on, on the, the, I don't have first claim or first dibs on the promises of Israel. I'm a little dog, Lord, but even the little dogs in my household have access to the crumbs that fall uh, from the table that my children drop. And he looks at her, and and he says, you see the whole mission here. You see it. What insight this woman had into the mind and plan of God. She saw it. Only God could have given her that kind of an insight. She was a desperate woman who had a great need to see her, her child taken care of. And desperate people are close to God. They have an insight, an understanding. You know, the, the Bible says that, that God gives understanding to those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be filled. Remember the Magnificat, that, that great uh, song of Mary, when she was told by the angel Gabriel that she would conceive? a son, and it would be the Messiah, it would be the Savior. Remember what she said, and I can't quote the whole thing to you, but she said, Lord, you have sent the rich away empty, but you have filled the hungry. Those of us who are hungry, those of us who are desperate, you have filled us with good things. You have revealed yourself, your plan, to those of us who are hungry before you. You have manifested your plan of the ages to those of us who have that heart posture before you. But to those who don't need you, those that don't see you or seek you, you've not given them anything. You've sent them away empty. She knew more of what God was doing in her time than those, forgive me, than those stupid disciples knew in that moment. They said, shoo her away. She's bugging us. She's, she's annoying us. And God was showing her the kingdom and was about to do a mighty miracle in her midst, and he did it. And today we are, here we are. 21 centuries later, still talking about it. (laughs) Perception. They weren't perceptive. She was to what the Lord was doing. Yes, Lord, even the little dogs of the crumbs which which fall from the table, they, they get fed. You don't owe me anything, but you're the Messiah. You can do anything. She persisted and he gives her the compliment of her life woman woman i have not seen such faith woman you have great faith your request is granted now where do you go with it it's a great story it's not just a story it is history but let's apply it let's just let me have a few moments with you just to apply it bring it home i've been i've been looking at this myself and i'm humbled because i i don't feel confident enough to say that I don't know this, but I don't know that the Lord would say that about me. Does my faith delight him? The way his, her faith delighted him? Obviously, her faith delighted Jesus, and he said it. Woman, but well, would he say that about me? Would he say it about you? What would others say about you or me? You know, let's just wrestle with it. Would Jesus celebrate your faith? Would he celebrate my faith today? That's an honest question is it a growing faith your faith or my faith are are we growing are we are we open to that do we do we want to grow in, in our faith life and you know a great faith can accomplish great things there's no no doubt about that right no doubt about that and none of us are finished god's not finished with any of us there's a lot of room to grow in in most of our lives and an outsider even a woman like this this woman she's an outsider to the things of god she doesn't have all the the wisdom that the Jews had. She doesn't have all the learning, all the background, but look what God could do with that faith that she had. Look what he could do in her life, how he could bless her. An outsider, somebody who's not steeped in spiritual things can be mightily used of God, mightily used of God, when they just give themselves over to him, when they're desperate for him. Jesus says, let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour can you imagine the uh the mood in the town of Tyre that night? As people looked at that little girl and they just said, Man, she's she's wonderful. She's her she's just a normal girl. She's happy and she's there's nothing happening to her. She's just in her right mind. She's she's hugging people and she's happy and she's. What happened? And that proud mom is saying. Messiah came here today. The son of David is here. He, he released her. He sent that demon screaming away. My daughter's returned. What great faith can do in our lives when it's placed into Jesus, into his, what he wants to do, what he can do, what he will do. Let it be to you as you desire, Jesus said. He wants to step in. He wants to, he wants to, to honor our faith Steps to forging a great faith. He celebrates here in her life, this, this Canaanite woman. Jesus celebrated her faith because it was a hungry faith. The application to me, to you, is this. Is my faith hungry? Is your faith hungry? Are we hungry? Well, I'm hungry for lunch a lot. I'm hungry for a lot of things. I'm hungry for my ego a lot. I'm hungry, for, I'm hungry for a lot of dumb things. But am I hungry for the right things? I'm confronting that in my life right now. Um, do, do I persistently, do you persistently and passionately pray for anything? What are we hungry for? That's what we're going to chase. But are we hungry for spiritual, for spiritual milk and for spiritual food? We must understand that's what the Lord wants for all of us. He wants us to be hungry for the right things, the best things. You know, don't, don't isn't it true that most of us go through life trying to fill our lives with, we want to get our needs met physical needs, emotional needs, intellectual needs, and we do a lot of things to meet the needs. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that a lot of things we do are wrong. I'm not suggesting that. But if we, if we don't allow God to be part of that equation, I think a lot of things we try to fill our life with will be empty. It's kind of like eating cotton candy. You just keep throwing it in your mouth, you know, and what happens? It just dissolves. And you're not, you're not really filled. Has anybody ever really filled your stomach on cotton candy? I mean, you can eat a lot of it, right? And pretty soon you just get a headache, maybe a gut ache. And it was really sweet, but, you know, you still want to just go have a steak, don't you? Or burger time or something, if you're not too sick from the sugar. Uh, You know, that's a lot of things in life you can just be hungry for, but they don't satisfy. And the Bible says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Do you hunger and thirst after him? And we had a whole bunch of people here for National Day of Prayer this week. That was a joy. And you could see a difference in people. In 30 minutes, when they came out of those prayer rooms, I, I, I'm not reading into this. And I didn't go into the rooms because I had a nice conversation with, with one of our staff. And, but I could see a difference in people. Their countenance was different. <laughs> they just came back to the, you know, the, the worship time that we had, a short worship time when we ended. You could just sense a difference in the atmosphere. You could see smiles. You could sense a lift in the hearts of people. Why? Because they just had moments with the master and each other, just talking to the king. (laughs) I could get going on that, but i got to move on here. Jesus celebrates a persistent faith. This woman was persistent. The disciple says, oh, get her out of here. She's bugging us. And Jesus ignores him. She ignores him. She just keeps on pushing on. Jesus, I'm not letting go of you till you give me what I need, what I want. Are you persistent in seeking him? Be hungry, friend, for what only he can do in your life to make you whole. That's what she was. I'm going backwards here. Sorry. Be hungry for what only he can do in your life to make you whole inside. Forget the cotton candy, okay? But be hungry for what he can do in your life to make you whole. And then be persistent. Be persistent. And don't interpret his silence Remember he was silent with her for a while. He didn't just rush over and just do what she said. There was a bit of a wait, there was a bit of a test. He just he let her faith grow. He let her faith grow. He let her articulate this. She said, "Lord, Lord, 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 I'm waiting. I'm waiting. You can do this." And he did. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't stop waiting on him. And then her faith was marked obviously by humility cuz she didn't get angry with him. She didn't raise her fist and say, you know, here I am, a Canaanite woman. You do what I say. I mean, how stupid would that be, right? She had no claim on him. And she said, I'm like a little dog under the table. I don't deserve a, I don't deserve a crumb, but the grace of God's pretty amazing, she said. Would you do something for me? And that's the right heart attitude, isn't it? So, friends, is our faith marked by those three things, hunger, persistence, and humility what might be blocking our progress in faith lots of things can block you know the bible talks about sin that easily besets us that's true for you and me we're all in that challenge aren't we of uh, we want we want mountain moving faith but it's so easy to have faith just kind of choked things just get in our get in the way stubborn things can choke it discouragement can choke it self pity that's my biggest One of my biggest weaknesses, I've said that before, I'll say it again. If you ever want to pray for me, say, Lord, help him to quit feeling sorry for himself. I'm really good at that, okay? None of you throw a bigger pity party in this room than I do. And I'll just be honest. You know why I'm being that honest? Because I want to quit doing that. And so I'm just being honest and saying, Lord, help me. Maybe they'll pray for me and I'll get over that, you know? So I want you to read these words with me, okay? For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. If you're discouraged today, if you feel a little down or defeated or having a pity party, you know what? You have not resisted to the shedding of your blood. You have not tried so hard that you've had to bleed to follow Jesus yet. So don't quit persist, pray, be humble, be hungry for him. Father, thank you, thank you for your love, your hope, your purposes in us. May we be renewed today. May we be renewed from the example of this woman who who just took what little she knew of you, but it was enough, and she said, Lord, I need you, and you just honored her faith, and awesome things happened in her life and in the lives of people. Bless you, Lord, for that example. We need to be inspired by her example today. I pray we will be in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.